We'll be finishing up the book of Ruth this morning. So we'll be looking at Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. It's printed in, a, in total in the ESV version in your bulletin for you. Of course, please feel free to turn there in your own Bibles. It's been a couple weeks, if you remember, that Boaz has made the redemption of Ruth secure. And he's made the redemption in, of Naomi certain. He did that in a courtroom, making it legal and official. And we saw that that shows us how our redemption in Christ, very often we think of it as, as emotive in our feelings, but it's very much so a objective reality that takes place in God's courtroom where Jesus Christ pays the penalty that we could not and then gives us his righteousness that we lacked. And we see that reflected here where Boaz pays the price to redeem Ruth and Naomi. So as we look at as finishing up Ruth here, boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletins. Remember, you have your own translation in there. Hopefully you have those. If you need one, get an usher's attention. Hopefully they can find one for you. So would you look with me now as we go to finish up Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. <clears throat> so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come before your word, Lord, we ask that you would indeed open this text up to us. Holy Spirit, would you build us up? May we see Christ and know him more deeply. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to kind of close out the book of Ruth and kind of jump into this text, I want to kind of get a little autobiographical here just for a second. I want to tell you about my Christian journey very briefly. I started out. I became a Christian about probably when I was 15, 14, 15 years old. And I started out as a Southern Baptist, and I have no regrets. I loved being a Southern Baptist. I have no problem with the Southern Baptist Church. My salvation to me was personal. The Bible was real. Every time I came across that little word, Y-O-U, I knew it was singular, and I was told like a good Baptist, and so I did it to put my name in there. And so the Bible was addressed to Sean very often, and it was such a living and active and vital faith. I was enthusiastic about Jesus Christ. He was a real person to me, to whom I spoke. And I sang about him, and I wanted to know more about him. It was an emotive, heartfelt Christianity. But for me, looking back... The gospel was really about what God did back then on the cross, not so much. 
It was about what Jesus was doing in me right here today. Then, confronted with, we'll call them intellectual challenges to the faith in college, never really finding an adequate church home there in Waco, Texas, my faith in God's providence elevated, we'll say. It went from here to here. It became more cerebral. I, became, I started to relish and to enjoy theology, especially Reformed theology. You know, people with robes and bow ties, those kind of guys. So, and I, I jumped in with both feet, obviously. I, I became concerned with what in our tribe is called being a TR, which means being totally Reformed. No, I am more Reformed than thee, brother. Oh, nay, brother, I am yet more reserved and more Reformed than thou. And, you, you know, it's... Oh, my beard is longer. I am more like Calvin than thee. Oh, no, Calvin was clean-shaven, actually. I am more, you know, very much concerned with getting it right. I realize, of course, because it is true that while you in Scripture is actually plural most of the time, and that Jesus Christ himself said the Scripture is about him, not Sean. And so God makes promises to his plural people, not to Sean, and so I, I, I quit plugging my name into the Bible because that was not proper. It's not right. My faith became less and less heartfelt, more heady. I quit really communing with Jesus as a person because I knew theologically, of course, we were to pray to God through Jesus, and so we addressed Father. You will never find a prayer addressed to Jesus Christ, and so do not do it. That's not very TR. I spent more time in the epistles than I did in the gospels. I went years without reading the gospels. Because the theology is in the epistles, man. Romans, that's where you go. Don't go to John, wimp. You know, none of that actually is wrong. I just did it incorrectly. I still had joy, but I, I would admit my faith became less alive, less applicable to today. Be the gospel was really all about what God did back then on the cross, and it was not really about me and my today. In fact, I would have told you it really didn't matter about my, me and my today because the gospel is about that. See, that distinction between, we'll call it a you versus a y'all faith. We'll call it uh, what God is doing today, a you, versus what God did for his people in Christ back then, what God is doing now. That distinction, we'll call it the you and the all, kind of reflects churches in america it kind of reflects christians in america really too so i'm, I'm going to kind of outline some stereotypes I just want to say up front as all stereotypes they are inadequate on some level there's always a mixture of both i know but let's just kind of step back and say which one of these do i more naturally fall into because you christianity types it's a very subjective faith very evangelical very emotive. We could even say romantic sometimes. This is lots of the love songs to Jesus. It's very heartfelt. The y'all Christianity types, much more objective. They actually prefer to, uh, no, 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 I'm not evangelical, I'm reformed. Very cognitive. The word duty excites these people. It's very heady. And I wonder... Where are you on that spectrum? Today, I would like to think and hope that I am a, trying to be a historical Presbyterian, going back to our roots 
it, you know, John Knox in Scotland and the Puritans and, and trying to get this wonderful, subjective, heartfelt religion from the Puritans, okay? Nathaniel Hawthorne was the Michael Moore of his day. If all you know about the Puritans is the Scarlet Letter, you've been given propaganda. The Puritans were wonderful, loving. They, they believed in emotions about God. They have wonderful devotional material. I hope I have that. But at the same time, we've got some major theologians that I hope I have some of that. So I'm trying to find that balance in my Christian life between those two poles. And I would like to encourage you today, I hope you are as well. Because the gospel is absolutely about the objective, official, historical reality of what God did in Jesus Christ on the cross in paying the price for our guilt in a court of law before God the judge. And the gospel is absolutely about what the Holy Spirit is doing in us today. And working out that objective salvation through a subjective, emotional, living faith as a child of God, joyful to be His. So last week we kind of saw the y'all stuff. It was about legalism, or no, legality, sorry, not legalism. It was about the courtroom, it was about what Boaz had to do. Now this week we're going to kind of bring it all back together by looking at the you. The more subjective, emotional aspects of it. So to help everybody understand where we're going, I want to give you a sentence today. Uh, parents, use this throughout the week at family worship to help remind yourselves what the sermon is. Kids, there's a place for you to write this down in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Here's what we're going to talk about today. God adores his people. And he's pretty crazy about you too. I'm going to say that again. God adores his people. And he's pretty crazy about you too. Because you see, God loves y'all. And he especially loves you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And so we're going to see that balance today between the love of God for his people and the love of God for you specifically and singular. So we'll start out with, we're actually going to work our way backwards. I want to look at the genealogy first, verses 18 through 22. Genealogies in Scripture are very seldom complete. They're always edited. Certain people are left out. Certain people are emphasized to make a theological point. This one is no exception. There are more than 10 generations between Perez, the son of Judah, and King David. But the point is getting back to that man named Perez. If you were here a couple weeks ago, we saw him back in verse 12 of this chapter. He is the son of Judah. He was from a foreign woman like Ruth. And he was the actual ancestor from which the clan that settled in Bethlehem, they all came from Perez. So you could really say that the Bethlehem people were actually all Perezites. They looked back to him. So they weren't just in Judah. Their subgroup was were actually from Judah's son, Perez. So they go back to him. And the point is this. Look how God got from Judah to great King David. The greatest king, the model for the Messiah came through a Moabite came through Ruth. But also, King David came about because of the mess and the pain and the struggle for redemption in this wonderful story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. What do we get from that struggle? King David, of all people. It's an amazing story. If you're reading this as an ancient Israelite, this is obviously written you know, during King David's lifetime or afterwards, you get to this like, what? David? You see, it wasn't haphazard. 
It wasn't that the universe was out to get Naomi. It wasn't this, that this set of circumstances, man, she has a really bad life. There was a purpose behind everything they went through. The sovereign king of the universe was guiding them through all of this stuff to bring about his king for his people. I mean, if you read it, like we have over the last month and a half, it looks like a story about the struggle and triumph of Ruth and, Ruth and Naomi. But actually, it's about God meeting those chaotic days of the judges with the peace and security and prosperity that David's monarchy brought about. The man after his own heart, King David, is the answer to the chaos of judges, and Ruth is the bridge. Oh, but there's so much more. It's not just that. God was working on an even greater redeemer than King David, wasn't he? God laid the foundation for the Savior the redeemer of all of his people the lord jesus christ is of the line of david the coming of the second person of the trinity was foreordained to come through ruth and boaz as well in other words the book of ruth is about god saving y'all boys and girls i don't want you to miss this look how we translated for you the beginning of verse 18 look with me in your translation here's how god blessed all his people through ruth and then we start the genealogy see ruth is about god's grand story of redemption for all of his people the lord jesus christ is of the line of david the new testament won't let you get around it in fact matthew pretty much goes to his mac there and right clicks and cuts paste this genealogy from ruth and puts it right into his genealogy follows it he won't let you miss ruth is where we get jesus so god is making all things new through this chaos in naomi's life through the struggle through the pain through the doubt she went through which means you have to think about it so the famine that happened in chapter one was really to get naomi to leave so she could find ruth and then the death of all the men in her life were really so she would come back with Ruth so God could bless them and bring forth children so he could bring forth King David so he could bring forth Jesus Christ. What an amazing, sovereign God. How can we be anxious in the power of one such as this? And if you remember as we went through it, even in all that junk and chaos, you remember Naomi never gave up on God's faithfulness to his people. Oh, she was very clear. She thought God was out to get her personally, but she knew God's promises to his people. She knew God adored his people, and so she would, she, he would not let his people down. So she was going to go back to Bethlehem, and she blessed her daughters-in-law in the name of that God. She knew the character of God. She never gave up on that. And now the readers of Ruth, we see the character of God. He used Naomi's and Ruth's lives to bring about great King David. And as we know from the New Testament, he also used their lives to bring about great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing could stop that plan because God digs his people. He has a plan and a promise to save his people from their sin. And it comes about through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what's emphasized in this genealogy. But the real emphasis that what I want to zoom in on here is in verse 14 through 17 where we see, you know what, God loves his people, but he especially loves you. 
This is one of my favorite parts about the book of Ruth. As you read it, as you get to the end and you think about it and you look back over the book. Theologically, we have to point to the ancestry of David here. We have to. It's the only right, proper way to do it. But the text will not let us lose the fact that there is a focus on Naomi in this book. It always comes back to her. Did you notice that as we, as we went through this book? All the junk in chapter 1, yet it ends with Naomi back at home with Ruth at the perfect time so she can get fed. Chapter 2, because of Boaz's connection with Ruth, or with Naomi, excuse me, he helps Ruth. And the chapter ends focusing again on Naomi, fed and settled and happy. Chapter 3, Naomi then takes the stage with her grand plan to, to take care of, Boaz, uh, of Ruth through Boaz. And Boaz recognizes it's Naomi's plan, so he sends her a pledge at the end of the chapter, again, focusing on Naomi. And then here in chapter 4, you can't get away from the fact that verses 14 through 17 are all about Naomi. I mean, the book's titled Ruth, but really you get to this point, it's almost as if the writer's like, yeah, yeah, Ruth and Boaz get married and live happily ever after. But look at Naomi. Look what happens here. She gets a grandson. Boys and girls, I want you to see this focus. Look with me at your translation at verse 14. It says this. The women said to Naomi, praise God. He has done what he promised. He's given you a redeemer. Talking to Naomi. They don't say, well, thank God for Boaz or thank God for what Ruth. No, Naomi, you have been given a redeemer. It says literally in verse 14 in the ESV, she has not been left without a redeemer. See, this is about Naomi. This is personal to her. And Obed is not a blood relative of Naomi. So to make it clear, Ruth in verse 16 makes her his nurse. Well, what is that? What is, what is a nurse? Well, here's how we kind of explained it for the, for the boys and girls. Look with me, if you would, at verse 16, boys and girls, in your translation. It says this, Naomi held her grandson in her lap, and Ruth made her his babysitter. She's his main caregiver. This woman who's lost her husband, who's lost her sons, who has no grandchildren. Ruth not only says, hey, look, you have a grandchild, I'll text you pictures every once in a while. She says, you get to be the one who helps take care of him primarily. You get to help raise him like a son. It will be as if you have your motherhood again. So much so that verse 15 tells us that they say this baby is going to be a restorer of life to her. That's an interesting word. What's a restorer of life? I want you to think about when you're on the internet. I want you to think about maybe you're reading your favorite blog or maybe you're checking your favorite news site or maybe you're on Facebook and all of a sudden some of the links quit working. And instead of getting a picture, you get that weird little square with that X in the middle of it showing a picture should be here. What do you do? Right? You, you hit the little swirly thing with the arrow on it in the upper corner, right? Or if you really know what you do and you hit Control-R, or if you're really a geek, you hit F5. Because they all three do the same thing. What do they do? They refresh the page, right? They reload with all new information. That's actually what this word means. This word means to refresh Naomi. They basically said, you know what? Obed is like God going, let's just, let's just refresh your whole life, make everything new and working again. Isn't that a great picture? God comes with this child. He's already taken care of his plan for his people. This is about Naomi. He hits a refresh button. He's a new beginning. God has made all things new in her life. Her family line will go on. She has that peace. And she's going to be taken care of in this life. She has that security. This is personal. God has restored Naomi. He has ensured her earthly provision for her life. He's given her all her heart desires in that culture. You realize God didn't have to do this. 
All the y'all stuff was handled. Obed's there, David's coming, Jesus coming. Okay, box off, I'm done here, next, next plan. But God doesn't do that. He focuses in and makes Naomi's life blessed and wonderful. Why does God do that? Because he loves Naomi. And God loves to bless his people personally. God has chosen a people for himself. He digs them. He's going to save them. He's going to protect them. But while focusing on the fact that God adores his people, don't miss that he is pretty crazy about you. Singular. The text won't let you, let you miss that. God keeps coming back to this woman because he wants to, even after his plans are taken care of. I want you to think about that. I want you to chew on that for a little while. So we're going to jump out of Ruth and grab another Old Testament verse. It's printed for you in the outline part of your sermon. It's Zephaniah 3.17. One of the best verses in the Bible, especially since it's in the mean Old Testament. I want you to look with me at this verse, about what God is talking about his people. And by the way, these YOUs are singular in this verse. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. This is scripture. Scripture says God is absolutely dancing a jig and whooping it up for joy at the thought of you. He loves you that much. Now, I know you don't believe that, but imagine how your life would change if you just would. Because, dear flock, God loves you individually. He never gets so wrapped up in the big picture of what he's doing that he forgets about you, his precious child. So don't ever fall for that lie that's out there a lot that, you know, God the Father is kind of this kind of stern up there like this and Jesus is the one who has to come and convince him to be loving and to, and to do this whole gospel thing and to save a people for himself and to love you. No, the, the gospel was God the Father's idea. He wanted to do it. The Bible tells us in several places, in love God predestined you to be his child through faith in Jesus Christ. And he did this because he wants a joyful fulfilling, wonderful, vital, living relationship with you. Not just abroad with y'all, his people. As we're, you know, hopefully, Lord willing, we're we're closing on a a new house down the street in about a month, and we're packing up and looking at some things, and I found my parents brought me this box of my Legos when I was about 10 years old. And so, We've added some of Joseph's Legos to that. So Joseph has this big pile of Legos, and he and I have been playing with Legos. And I had this one little toy. It's a wind-up Lego piece. I probably got it when I was like eight years old. You know, and Joseph's nine. So this thing's like 30-something, 31 years old here. And it still works, and it wasn't working that well. And I said, well, Joseph, let me just take this, and I'll, I'll get you a new one. It'll work better. And he grabbed it and held it. He goes, no, my daddy played with this when he was a boy. It's special. I want this one. And that kind of close connection... That is what God has created for you through Jesus Christ. He thinks you're special. He dances a jig at the thought of you. He wants that closeness with his people. He has a plan to redeem his people and especially you. Oh, if only you would believe that. So here's... A couple things to take home from this. 
one. During suffering, when your life is not going that well, perhaps you're just maybe feel like you're living an unfulfilled life. There's nothing particularly going bad. You're just, life could be so much better. Or maybe you are going through some pretty significant trials. Maybe the suffering has gotten to the point where you're just sick of this. The Christian life is difficult and often challenging, isn't it? Okay, let's all acknowledge that together, yes. Okay, students, young people, did you hear that? Life is challenging. The church fails our young people so often because we, 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 try, we try to hide the bad parts and just give you only the good parts. Let's just keep you entertained and happy. Don't show you the bad stuff so you'll keep coming to church. And then when you go off to college and major reality hits, you're kind of like, whoa, life isn't easy and there's no ammo from my church. I'm just going to do something else then because obviously Christianity doesn't work. So building on that, by the way, on the great work Miss Lisa has already done, that's why Dr. Sam and the session have kind of are committed to helping our young people cultivate an adult faith through real life with real adults together. If you'd like to be part of our kind of refocus of our student ministry, please let Sam know. Anyway, that's for free. Here's what I wanted to say. In, in the difficulties and trials of our lives, we're very often tempted to despair and to bitterness, aren't we? I want you to look again at God's personal grace to Naomi here through this entire book. She didn't know the importance of Obed for God's big picture. She didn't know, if you said the word King David, she'd say, who? She never, through most of the stuff, she didn't even know that there was going to be a baby involved here. She didn't know about Jesus for sure. While she was struggling, she didn't know Obed was coming. See, this teaches us, I think, caution. It teaches us wisdom. Because in our difficulties, in our stresses, in our very hard lives, to be candid, we just don't know enough to despair completely. Because we don't have any idea what God's doing. Or to think that what we do doesn't matter to God. We just don't. Naomi had no idea. She's still holding Obed. It really has no idea how big of a deal her life is for the kingdom of God and his plans. See, this ending to the book of Ruth reminds us that God loves us personally. And very often he uses individuals like us to bring great blessings to his people in ways we may not even know, we may not even see in our generation. So take that with you. Because Naomi was bitter, she admitted it. Naomi's life was difficult. We're not going to try to cover that up. And there were no trite answers given to her. God just kept meeting her needs until he finally blessed her in his timing and blessed all of us through what he did to her. You never know what God is doing in your life in these difficulties. Second thing, once you take a step back, once you kind of look in your heart as we did at the beginning and really think about it, are you a you? more Christian, or are you a y'all type Christian? Again, I know everybody's a mixture of both. I, I get that, but if you had to pick, where would you, are, are you kind of the you, singular? It's very subjective. It's very emotive. It's very real. I'm not theology. Blah. It's about how I feel, and it's very heartfelt and very alive, or you tend to be more about the, well, this is what God has done for his people. It's objective. It, it's settled, and my feelings are important, but mainly, let's just talk about theology some, or, or you know, let's not get too emotional there. I'm kind of uncomfortable with that. Where, where are you? If you lean more towards the you, singular Christianity, 
I need to ask you, do you have more than an emotional faith? Because in your emotive living faith, make sure it's grounded in truth. All of your guilt is taken away. God perfectly accepts you in Jesus Christ. And you need to be reminded of that because very often if you're a you Christianity, what you do is you take your subjective feelings about the gospel in any given moment and you make those subjective feelings the basis for your acceptance with God. I feel like a very successful Christian right now. God must really love me. Man, I feel good. Oh, I don't feel like a very good Christian right now. I bet God hates me. I, I, I can't even pray. No, because he, he, he would reject me. That's, that's the pitfall of the you Christianity. You, you need to remember the truth that God perfectly accepts you through the objective work of Jesus Christ and your feelings, frankly, don't matter about it. And in that, let yourself have joy that it's taken care of and God says, you are my child and nothing can take you from me. In other words, you need to add to your faith knowledge. Now, if you lean more towards a y'all Christianity, do you have more than a cerebral faith? Is God a person? Is he living and active, actually doing things in your life? Or is it more like this principle that you've based your life on? That the, the theological structure of Christianity, you know what, that fits, and I fit into that. Life makes sense. I'm born again, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, and you know what, I, I like this, and so there we go. I pray at everything, but if you really ask me, you know, I'm not really comfortable talking about God as a person. And the other side of that is, do you realize that God loves you lavishly? Not just that, yes, God has given us Jesus Christ and saved his people for himself. And he offers us his gospel today by the power of the Holy Spirit. All who repent and believe are saved and united to Christ. Do you feel that? Do you realize that your emotions are not a product of the fall? They are created by God for his glory. He did not begrudgingly save. He rejoices over you as singing. So in your knowledge, make sure you add some feelings to your faith. And then finally, we'll just leave with this. If all of this is kind of just going, oh, over your head, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You know, I, I don't even know if I am a Christian. Actually, I don't know y'all or you or me or it. I don't know. Well, guess what? God loves his people. And you can be one of them. Simply turn from everything you have looked to for happiness. Turn from everything you've looked to for peace. Recognize that you feel guilty. Because you are guilty. But if you turn to Jesus Christ in faith and trust, he will take your guilt and forgive you of that guilt because he paid the penalty for it himself. He can set you free. He can forgive you and give you peace. Confess him as Lord. Repent of your sins and you will be saved. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we thank you for how big your gospel is we thank you father for the absolute security that the gospel is about what you have done in the past through jesus christ that our salvation is secure by the historical events of his life death and resurrection and that lord we also take great comfort in the fact that the gospel is about what you are doing to us 
through us and in us by your Holy Spirit through the power of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That you are living and active and purposely doing your will in us today. Lord, would you help us to embrace and relish the truth that does not change of your gospel. And would you help us to dive in deeply into the joy and emotions of a living faith today. Lord, we ask that you would do your work of salvation. That those of us who do know you, you would build us up and grow us up into more mature Christians. And that those who do not know you would see Christ, confess him, and live. And we ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.